All right, before we get started with this podcast, we need to talk about something. Friends, it, it feels like the whole world can literally change for the worse overnight. You're following the news stories. With what's likely coming for our country, there is one thing you should do, and that's prepare. When you're more self-reliant, you're closer to freedom from any national crisis or job loss or economic downturn. But where do you start, and who can you trust? Let me make this clear. Building an emergency food supply to feed yourself and your family is a wise first step. And our friends at My Patriot Supply will help you prepare. Get four weeks emergency food supply for only $99, shipped free. That's 140 adult servings of easy to prepare food order today 888-457-3453 888-457-3453 or go online at preparewithcr.com that's preparewithcr.com build your emergency food supply for only $99 limit two units per caller 888-457-3453 or online at preparewithcr.com that's 888-457-3453 or at preparewithcr.com. All right, now let's get to the podcast. You are now about to witness the strength of knowledge. This is Steve Dace. Raising a banner of bold colors, no pale pastels. People should not be afraid of their governments. Governments should be afraid of their people. Our rights are inherent and essential. Derived from our maker, that is liberty, and liberty will reign in America. This is Steve Dace. And good evening. Welcome to the broadcast. And you're not hearing Steve this time. It's actually Vince Coakley joining you out of Charlotte, North Carolina. I'm a good friend of Steve Dace, and it's an honor again to fill in for him in his absence this evening. I happen to do a broadcast at WORD in Greenville, South Carolina. It's good to be back with you. A little bit's happened since the last time we talked. You think? I think it was uh, back in the summer. We were in the midst of all of the primary madness. In fact, I think the uh, primary may have wrapped up by that time. And one of the things, and just to give you some connection point and how Steve and I have related. I very often say when I see Steve's writings, I feel like he's in my head because we agree on so many things. Now, I have to acknowledge here there's been a little bit of a divergence at the end of the presidential campaign, which I will get into in a moment. But I will tell you this, there is very little ideological difference between Steve and I. We are in unity on so many things. I just made a slightly different decision than Steve, which I will go into and explain, and we'll talk about during the course of the broadcast today. One of the things that, and I'm seeing this already, in the unfolding of events related to the transition team for Donald Trump, we're already seeing some very odd manifestations. I mean, look at it. And in fact, right now, they're having a discussion about the team that's been put together, who's at the top of the team here? Steve Bannon and Reince Priebus. And I remember over the weekend, they said, well, an announcement is imminent. And you know the thought that went through my mind? I have a strong feeling both of these guys were going to play very significant roles. Now, Reince Priebus, you know, Reince Priebus to me is like the uh, Republican version of George Stephanopoulos. Doesn't he 
kind of strike you that way too. There, there's just something very Weasley about this guy that I just don't trust. I mean, you think of the word establishment, there is Reince Priebus's picture. Steve Bannon, you know, I've had some measure of interaction with over the past year or so. And uh, it'll be interesting to see how this plays out. Because, it, you know, you know as well as I do. It's going to be very important. The kind of team that puts to, that is put together here will determine what kind of administration this will be. I don't have any illusions or delusions about what to expect here, which I will get into momentarily. So we'll talk about this, and I'd love to get some of your thoughts. I want to get kind of the mood of many of you as you see the groundwork being laid for this new administration that will come in in January. I'm going to find out how many of you are encouraged. You know, I think first and foremost, many of you are encouraged by the fact that Hillary Clinton, the Clinton crime family, is pretty much vanquished. They're gone, although there's already rumblings that they're preparing for the next generation with Chelsea. But I don't think there's a single person, whether you supported Donald Trump or not, there's not a single person who is a conservative who is shedding any tears for the loss for Hillary Clinton. Now, where things go with Trump and what he's about, well, we have plenty of questions. And time will tell what we will get. I contend it's going to be a mixed bag. There will be some good things, and I suspect there will be some horrible things, which I will delve into during the course of the broadcast. And one of the things that I I want to make a continuing theme for my life, I'm a person who is a builder. I need, I need to explain what that means. My interest is in building foundations. It's about restoring foundations. It's not about doing the, the um, I guess, the dress-up work, the pretend, the window dressing. This is where so many politicians are. They're into the window dressing. My contention is the foundation is rotting under you. The window dressing is really not going to help you very much. And this is one of the reasons why I, I'm not a fan of a person like a Donald Trump in the sense that I don't think he will deal with foundations. He will deal with some issues that we will agree with. But the core foundations of the country... And our constitutional system, I don't expect much to be addressed there in moving us toward limited government and reducing the size of government. I hope I can be proven wrong. So we'll talk about this issue of self-government and all of its manifestations, including a, a social media post that a friend of mine posted a couple of weeks ago that I want to share with you. In fact... I have not even shared this with my Greenville, South Carolina audience yet. So you're in for a real treat. Because this guy hits it right on the head. You know, one of the big problems is, as we have a government that gets bigger and bigger, we have people that become smaller and smaller. They're not engaged. They don't know how to govern themselves. And so this is why we look to the government to do this for us. It's very simple. So if you want to bring about smaller government, 
you have to start teaching people how to govern themselves. And that we will address in several forms. I want to share with you something that I wrote and posted on my own blog. I won't bore you with the entire thing because I took a lot of heat, I have to tell you. A lot of people were really ticked off because I was very critical of Donald Trump all the way to the end. Because I had questions about this man's fitness for office, those questions that remain. I will just share with you the uh, significant parts of what I wrote, the end of what I communicated to my audience on Election Day, explaining my decision. I said I might very well vote for the man, but I was never going to endorse the man. There's a very important difference here. Let me pick up where I explained my decision and see if this resonates with you. On Friday, one of the last days of early voting in North Carolina, I walked into the voting booth with a final decision. I tapped the touchscreen for every race except the first one. With a heavy heart, I returned to page one and voted for Donald J. Trump. I've chosen the crazy one over the criminal. By the way, this is how I characterize this presidential race, criminal versus crazy. I did this for one reason alone, damage control. As Mark Levin has brilliantly articulated, Hillary Clinton must be stopped. That's it. This is not an expression of confidence in Mr. Trump, simply a rejection of the unthinkable alternative. And again, keep in mind, this is something that I shared with my audience on Election Day. If Mr. Trump can pull off a victory, he should fall on his knees and give God the glory. A win certainly will not be the result of him successfully selling himself to the American people. He would simply be the last person standing in a battle between two very unlikable and toxic candidates. And I hope Mr. Trump will take the opportunity to earn the trust of millions of Americans like me. I also hope his election might prompt him to deeply humble himself and express a willingness to grow as never before, first and foremost, as a human being. I pray that he will begin an earnest pursuit of wholeness to unearth and conquer the demons that drive him to wound people in an effort to unwound himself. He actually said that, by the way. This isn't me playing psychologist. He acknowledged this troubling behavior to Megyn Kelly during the primary. And this is how I concluded. I will also pray that those who have Mr. Trump's ear will be strong and refuse to be bullied. Frankly, of those in his circle, it's only Newt Gingrich who I've ever heard call out his juvenile behavior publicly. I especially like his challenge weeks ago that Mr. Trump had to make a choice, whether to become president or whether to be himself. The same is true for being president. If he's elected to the nation's highest office, Mr. Trump must seek divine help to become the man this nation needs at this critical time in history. A 70-year-old adolescent simply will not do. Does that resonate with you? Again, my vote simply for one purpose, to stop Hillary Clinton. That's it. That's all. No expectations beyond that. Now he has the opportunity to earn my trust and to earn your trust. If you're wrestling with doubts, I'd love to get your thoughts on this. The listener line, 800-281-TALK, 
1-800-281-8255. Want to get your thoughts on this. Also coming up, we'll talk about self-governance and where we need to go with this. On the Steve Day Show, I'm Vince Coakley. You are listening to Steve Dace. I like you. We're not concerned about what you think, but why you think it. Steve Dace. At 21 minutes after the hour, our conversation continues. Wanted to get your thoughts of what I've communicated. I've just made it very clear here. I'm not a cheerleader for Donald Trump. He was a person who was a stand-in against Hillary Clinton. This is how I viewed it. Now, I want to see what the man is going to do. In fact, a few minutes from now, we're going to talk with a good friend of mine in Congress about the agenda for 2017 and what Congress hopes to do in cooperation with the new president. First, uh, let's go out to a call from Jim joining us in Alabama, who has some perspective on this. Uh, good evening, Jim. Hi. So take it away, sir. Uh, what's your objection to what I've communicated here? Well, I mean, I think for the most part, your skepticism of Trump's uh, ability to uh, overcome his uh, personality are what everybody was worried about. But at the same time, the continual use of the uh, fallacy, uh, the ad hominem of uh, Hillary the criminal, is basically what won the election, um, even though it's an argument that is uh, false. Now, now, before we go into that, do you think this had more to do with Clinton, or did you think it had more to do with the fact that there's an identification that Donald Trump was able to uh, manifest with people who are struggling, who are looking for something different? Do you think that was more significant than the Clinton uh, investigation issue? Well, it's it's also a turn of phrase, because I think what he what he was able to tap into, unfortunately, and it's been talked about, and I think it's uh, you know, evidently very clear in the rural communities that are predominantly white male that he won that vote. And there's a, you know, a concern where that vote came from. Is it rooted in racism? Is it rooted in sexism? Or is it rooted in both? Now, now where, where do I... Where do I go into this category, Jim? Because I voted for the guy. I'm a black man. Now, what does this make me? Well, I'm a white man, and I voted for Hillary. So... I don't know if it makes. I don't know if that in and of itself uh, defends either argument, but that the majority that voted for um, Mr. Trump were white males living in rural areas of the uh, states. That uh, let me let me ask you a question here, because you're a, you're a person who's quite defensive of Hillary Clinton, and you seem to take offense to the idea that she is a criminal. Uh, now, obviously, she's not been convicted of anything. Frankly, she hasn't been tried of anything. Uh, do you find her to be a person who is innocent of the things that she's accused of? Um, the same way that I would for any human being on the planet. Until they're proven otherwise, it should not be uh, the ability of any 
especially presidential candidates, to use that sort of attack on another human. Well, let me ask you, Jim. If the, let me ask you, Jim. I, 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 if you were in the military, did you hear the story, for instance, about the guy who was? I believe he was on a a submarine or something like that. And he actually took a picture, one picture. This guy was prosecuted. He was court-martialed for one picture. Now, compare this to all of the emails, and not just emails, the fact that this woman set up a private email server to do State Department business. This doesn't concern you one iota. Okay, so there's, there's two ideas there. One is that you're comparing the military court, which we all know is its own special sort of system. No one really has ever figured that out. And the continual use of the email server has been, I think, even though it was used possibly by the Republican Party for Trump's benefit, it's been shown that there aren't any classified emails that the director of the FBI sensed had any Really? Oh, wait a second, Jim. That's actually untrue. The, 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 issue did, the issue was never a question of whether classified material was sent. The issue was one of motive. The only reason that uh, James Comey said that they're not going to pursue the case was that uh, the motive. He doesn't see there was a criminal intent here. Right. And that, the, and that motive is usually what defines whether something is a crime or not. So if I kill someone and there's no motivation to do so, then I shouldn't be prosecuted for anything. No, no. And, you know, that's not true. That's another false argument. I I don't see how that's a false argument because I would be charged with something, even if it's negligent. I didn't say anything. Now, you're comparing murder to email. I think that's a that's a uh, rather big jump, don't you? Well, it may be a big jump, but I think the uh, the reasoning behind this, I, I do appreciate the opportunity to talk with you, Jim, but the bigger picture you have to understand is, I mean, it's rather obvious here. The only reason Hillary Clinton is a free woman right now is because she's Hillary Clinton. Nobody else would get away with this. This is what people do not understand. And what frustrates me, this, this goes back even to the whole Bill Clinton thing. You remember the nonsense with the uh, the sexcapades? You know, related to Monica Lewinsky and, you know, and, and people try to argue, well, this is about sex. No, it's about perjury. If it was no big deal, why did why did Bill Clinton lose his law license? Can someone explain this to me? But this is where politics takes over. And, and this is where I, and, and I think there's there's a place where people like Steve and I have an advantage because we have been honest We are not the kinds of people who are going to defend criminality or immorality, for that matter, just because someone has our alleged political label. This is something that Clinton supporters just were not able to do. They went all the way down with this woman. And I think it's very evident that, unfortunately, sometimes... uh, for a lot of people, their their politics transcends their moral and even spiritual values. You know, what matters is that my side wins, and I will defend this and that. This is one of, I don't know about you, but I was driven crazy during the campaign 
watching all of these surrogates on television defend Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. There's in some cases, there's just no defense. Please just go on television and say, listen, he is not her. I can listen to that. But if you're going to go on and you're going to excuse and try to explain things that are really not excusable or explainable, all you have to do is just be blunt and say, you know what, there's no excuse for that behavior. Um, by the way, I'm simply voting this way because this person is not as bad as this criminal. That's it. That's all you've got to work with. As I mentioned during the course of the broadcast, we're going to talk about the issue of self-government because I believe we've got a lot of work to do. And those of us who say we are conservatives, we've got to regroup and figure out what our strategy is going to be going forward. That means identifying the right kind of leadership. And at the same time, it means for us being leaders, governing ourselves and helping others in this exercise of self-governance. We're going to talk about that in the course of the broadcast. Congressman Jeff Duncan, though, is coming up right here on the Steve Day Show. You're listening to Steve Dace. I like you. Want your country back? Keep listening for instructions. This is Steve Dace. And we continue with the Steve Dace Show. My name is Vince Copley. And one of the people I've really come to appreciate in the area where I broadcast is uh, probably one of the strongest members of Congress in terms of constitutional fidelity. Uh, that's Congressman Jeff Duncan. He represents South Carolina's 3rd Congressional District. And uh, they are back in session, as you well know, in their lame duck session. They've got some important decisions to make, including uh, choosing leadership and also uh, some spending bills that are ahead of them. Also looking ahead to 2017. And Congressman Duncan joins us this evening out of Washington, D.C. Welcome back to the broadcast, sir. Well, Vince, thanks for having me on Steve's show tonight. And, uh, wow, what interesting times we have with uh, Republican control of Congress, uh, both houses and also the White House for the first time since about 1928, starting uh, January 20th, when uh, the president-elect Donald Trump will be sworn in. So uh, interesting times that we're living in and uh, exciting times in a lot of ways that we might be able to to get some things done in repealing Obamacare and unleashing and unbridling the innovative and entrepreneurial spirit that Americans have, repatriation of over to overseas earnings, that would be a cash infusion into this economy, focusing on American energy independence, securing our nation by securing our southern border, and understanding we're a sovereign nation to determine our own laws and our own fate. So it is exciting times. Well, no question about the opportunity uh, that stands before us right now. I, I want to first, uh, before we go into 2017 and the agenda that Donald Trump has laid out for the first 100 days, there's some business that has to be carried out here in the short term. Among them, uh, the leadership uh, contests. And it, from what I've been able to discern, it looks like uh, no change in leadership. Is that the way things are looking right now for the House? Well, that looks like how it's shaping out. Um, you know, Paul Ryan looks like he's going to run unopposed tomorrow within our conference. 
Uh, that's what that's within within the House Republican Conference. That's not the floor vote that you normally see televised, where we formally elect a Speaker of the House. Uh, that will happen on January the third. But this is within the conference itself. So we'll uh, have a vote tomorrow for Speaker, for Majority Leader, and for Majority Whip, Conference Chair, and some additional uh, conference officers, Vice Chair and Secretary, and that sort of thing. Uh, there are only a couple of opposed races, and that's at Vice Chair and, um, I think, Secretary, and also the Chairman of the NRCC, which is the political arm of the Republican Conference. And uh, so all that will take care take place tomorrow. And uh, upper leadership, Paul Ryan, Kevin McCarthy, uh, Steve Scalise, are unopposed at uh, at this hour. Now, one of the things I'm curious about, there's been a lot of concern expressed uh, in the past few months about the fact that these appropriation bills have not gone forward as they're supposed to. And here we are again having to look at another continuing resolution to fund the government. What do you expect to happen here? Well, we'll learn more about that in the morning at 9 o'clock in our conference meeting, but uh, I expect another short-term CR. Um, There's not a lot of stomach for doing a lot of things during the lame duck here. Uh, and giving Harry Reid and, and Barack Obama even uh, within a lame duck people that are unaccountable to the voters anymore because they're not running for re-election or termed out uh, another bite at the apple to spend your hard-earned tax dollars. So uh, I suspect we'll probably see a short-term CR crafted and voted on before December 8th that doesn't have a whole lot of policy involved in it and kick it into the next administration, which is what we wanted to do back in September is have the CR expire in, in February or March. Uh, and it, it, they, they wrote it to expire December the 8th, and uh, so we'll have to vote on another one. But I believe it'll be a short-term one since, and it'll probably maintain current spending levels. But the other couple of things that we probably need to work on and, and get done, uh, there is the water resources bill, the water bill, which will um, basically fund infrastructure such as the Port of Charleston, which is so important to South Carolina de- delegation, uh, voting on a conference report on that bill, a National Defense Authorization Act, uh, will probably be voted on in the lame duck. And um, and then the other thing that I think is intriguing, I was talking with Speaker Ryan uh, on Friday about this, is if you remember, Obamacare was passed by Democrats using a tool called budget reconciliation, where uh, they recon- reconcile the budget between the two bodies, House and Senate, and they use that as a vehicle to pass Obamacare. Well, if we can pass a budget, which we haven't passed a budget this year for various reasons, but if we can pass a budget in the lame duck, then we have a shell uh, of a bill over in the Senate that can be used for reconciliation on repealing Obamacare early in January. We can't write a replacement bill in reconciliation, is my understanding, but we can repeal Obamacare. And we can do a couple other things with regard to to a tax uh, reform and whatnot within a reconciliation, budget reconciliation bill. So I anticipate leadership trying to bring a a budget to the floor, maybe multiple budgets, so we have multiple shell bills over on the Senate side that can be used for reconciliation. And and that's exciting because what that means is a privileged bill on the Senate side. It does not require a 60-vote threshold to proceed. Uh, As you see, the cloture vote happens so many times in, in the Senate. This is a budget reconciliation bill, and uh, we'd be able to take up a lot of things, privilege motion that could be taken up right away. Great. We'll look forward to talking more about this coming up. We're going to stay with Jeff Duncan and talk with him about what's ahead in the new year with the new president. Stay with us on the Steve Day Show. 
It's about convictions, not positions. Steve Dace. And we continue the broadcast here at 944. It is the uh, big question for 2017. What kind of rollout will we see from President Donald Trump in the first 100 days? He's laid out his agenda in the Gettysburg Address, which includes a repeal of Obamacare. We're talking with Congressman Jeff Duncan of South Carolina. And, Jeff, one of the things I'm curious about is uh, how soon might we see a bill on uh, President Trump's desk to repeal Obamacare? Um, I think our goal is January 20th, the day he's sworn into office, that he can go to the Oval Office and sign or walk right into the Capitol and have a signing ceremony. Uh, it may not be that quick. It depends on a budget, as I mentioned earlier, and budget reconciliation. I think the House will do its work fairly quickly in January. Then it comes down to what the Senate and Mitch McConnell can uh, can cobble together over there to get something uh, to the president's desk. So, uh, But I think early. And definitely he has a robust agenda in the first 100 days. And I think Paul Ryan, Speaker Ryan, really wants to try to help uh, President-elect Trump move his agenda, as much of it, in the first 100 days. Very robust, uh, I think. Uh, I look forward to working with them. Absolutely. One of the things I'm curious about, and I don't know, um, I I guess I have a sense of where you probably are on this. There's something that kind of concerns me. When I hear the phrase repeal and replace, uh, I'm all for the repeal part. I'm curious about what replace means. If it means simply coming up with another another big government program, uh, do you have a sense of where this is going to go in terms of whatever reforms are, whatever adjustments to what has previously been taking place under Obamacare? Yeah, I think you can look at the uh, House Republican Conference and see that we've got a replacement bill that was rolled out by Dr. Tom Price, chairman of the uh, Budget Committee, uh, probably a year, year and a half ago. So there is a replacement bill out there. I can't go into all the details because I don't remember, but let me just say, from a Republican standpoint and from mine, Jeff Duncan's standpoint, uh, more free market solutions allowing, you know, folks to purchase insurance across state lines, allow you to own some, own that insurance policy and have portability or ability to carry that policy with you, uh, like you do in car insurance and home insurance and other things. So, uh, I like associational health care plans where you allow associations to band together and offer plans to their members. I'll give you an example. There are 15,000 uh, realtors in the South Carolina Realtor Association back in uh, 2008 when Obamacare was rolled out. There was also 15,000 state employees in the state of South Carolina. I was a, a member of that group. Uh, I had very affordable Blue Cross Blue Shield state employee health insurance because the risk was spread out along among 15,000 state employees. If we could have offered a similar plan for the 15,000 members of the Realtors Association, you would have been able to spread that risk and have affordable insurance for that association. That is a free market solution that Republicans ought to embrace. It covers uh, some pre-existing conditions because you're part of a group as a group plan. And so there are some free market simple solutions. The bottom line is we need to get the big government, federal government, out of our health care, out of making health care decisions for our families and uh, getting between us and our doctor. And uh, we need to also, I think, look at Medicare and Medicare reimbursement to the doctors and some of the requirements that the federal government has used Obamacare to push down on the hospitals, whether it's a hospital, rehab hospital, or individual doctors, things that they have to do in order to be reimbursed for that by Medicare. Uh, We need to address that as well as uh, we work on the repeal and replacement of Obamacare with more free market solutions. One of the things that people have been concerned about, because at some point, I know we've heard 
some communication out of uh, Donald Trump as a candidate suggesting some type of single-payer setup. Do you have any concern that this could go down that road? House Republicans won't allow a single-payer system where the government pays that. You know, when I think about single-payer, I think about me paying for my family. Uh, that is what has to happen in this country where uh, we take control of, within our own lives. It could be an employer-sponsored plan, an associational plan, but we as individuals, as, as mothers, fathers, uh, husbands, uh, parents, uh, where we make health care decisions for our family, because this wasn't about health care reform. Obamacare was not health care reform. Obamacare was a takeover of the health care industry by taking over the health insurance industry and collecting money from those that could have the ability to pay and redistributing that money to those who didn't have the ability to pay to pay for their insurance premium. And because there were so many of those, costs continue to go up. I I know my Obamacare, uh, I've got to get online this week. We're in the open enrollment period. I've got to shop for a new plan. And all indications are my cost will go up. And the cost of my employer, you, the American citizens, that pay a portion of my premium, uh, as an employer-sponsored plan, your costs will go up as well. Uh, people are ex- people are experiencing those costs all over America, and I think that was a huge factor uh, in this presidential election that saw Donald Trump become our president-elect. Well, in the final minute or so we have left, uh, I want to get a sense from you as to how you're feeling going into this, because you're a very conservative uh, member of Congress. You have one of the highest uh, liberty scores uh, by conservative review there, that's something that uh, you are unassailable in that area. Are you optimistic about the future in, in pursuing a conservative direction for the country? I am, Vince. I mean, look, um, you know, I've, I've heard all the rhetoric out of Paul Ryan. I've talked to him and McCarthy. I, I hear what Donald Trump is talking about. I think we're going to have a robust rollout in January working toward uh, implementing his, uh, his platform. And I'm optimistic. I'm hearing good things out of the leadership. Uh, the proof will be in the pudding. You know, I heard good things in 2010 when the House was going to take over, uh, be taken over by House Republicans. I heard good things out of John Boehner and company, but they just failed to act on the things they promised the American people. A lot of promises have been made in this campaign season by both Donald Trump, running for president, but also members of the House and Senate that are running for re-election or for new elections. And uh, it, it's time to put those promises in action. And I think America is, is sitting uh, cautiously optimistic uh, that we can get these things done and go back to unleashing and unbridling that innovative American spirit to help make America great again. Well, Congressman Jeff Duncan, I appreciate everything you do and the stand that you take for constitutional principles. Thanks a lot for joining us on the broadcast again, sir. Absolutely, Vince. Take care. Thanks so much. God bless. God bless you as well. As we continue on the Steve Day Show, I want to get your thoughts. What Are you Are you encouraged? And, and I have to tell you, honestly, there are people... If they were to come on this program and share uh, what has just been communicated here from um, Jeff Duncan, if it's just about anybody else in Congress, I would be profoundly skeptical. But I do think Jeff is a good guy. And to the extent that there are constitutional things done, then um, I think we can find a little comfort there. Trust but verify. Remember those words from Ronald Reagan? As we continue the Steve Day Show, I'm Vince Coakley. You're listening to Steve Dace. I like you.
If it's true and you still don't like it, that's a you problem. You're listening to Steve Dace. Coming up, we're going to talk about this issue of self-governance. A really good post from social media from a good friend of mine here in the Charlotte area. One of the things I continue to be amused by is the crazy overreaction of people to this election. Mary Madeline, who who is certainly no Trump supporter, and Van Jones got into it on This Week yesterday. Uh, Check out this exchange. And I stand by it. I said uh, that race was a part, and there was a part, that alt-right part, that was a part of a white lash. And, and if you listen to the whole quote, you would agree with what I said. So so I don't take that back. I, I did listen. And at the end, you said, good. what do I tell the kids? What and, I would and, tell and, your and kids, I, and, I'm a black man in America who went to Yale, who's and, written books, who served and a and president, I'm a, and, and, and I'm a ninth-generation American man, and I'm the first one in my family born with all my rights. I'm a ninth-generation American. And so we have not escaped because I went to Yale all the problems of this country. Poli- I spent more time than you have trying to be a racial reconciler in this country. Really? And, and How do you know that? Oh, do you know well, Van Jones well, is a cute? Do you know anything about me? Uh, well, do you, you apparently don't know anything about me. And yes, I, I'm, I do I'm, I'm know. Your daddy, you your grandparents were teachers. Your dad, your grandfather was a bishop. George, this is the problem that we have right now. It is, in fact, the case that there was a populist revolt in this country, yes. both Sanders and Trump, but one of them was marbled through with this alt-right stuff. If someone like myself, who is married to a white woman, who has spent my entire life building bridges, can't point out the alt-right white lash reaction without being accused of being a racial polemicist, we're going to have a big problem. And I don't think how do you have no sense of decency to say that a man a healer throughout a horrific, brutal campaign he has spoken sanity to power and oh, to those who hey, my deepest apologies. You don't know anything about me. You well, don't know talk, anything about afterwards. my healing. And I would say there are ways to get to reconciliation different from calling, the, focusing on the toxic elements, as you, you said on election both. night. You have to talk about well both. You don't talk about both. You guys will talk about it outside. Pretty bad there. George Stephanopoulos finally had to bring that to a, a merciful end. You know, this this thing, this race baiting thing, and let me just set you guys up for this. This is not going to stop. In fact, this is going to get worse. Now, part of what's wrong with this, there is an element of truth in what Van Jones is saying. Now, what Van Jones is trying to do is to broad brush the entire the entire group of people who supported Donald Trump and describe all of those people as racist, which is totally unacceptable. Coming up, we'll get to the important issues of self-governance. What does it actually look like? How do we get away from big government with all of its tentacles? We're going to talk about this with a really good social media post coming up in the next hour, right here on the Steve Day Show. I'm Vince Coakley. You're listening to Steve Dace. I like it, you. You are now 
are about to witness the strength of knowledge. This is Steve Dace. Raising a banner of bold colors, no pale pastels. People should not be afraid of their governments. Government should be afraid of their people. Our rights are inherent and essential, derived from our maker. That is liberty, and liberty will reign in America. This is Steve Dace. And a shout-out to Michael. Thanks a lot for your tweet. Sent a few minutes ago, I did not vote for Trump, but I thoroughly enjoyed your opening monologue on the Steve Day Show tonight. My name is Vince Coakley, and I appreciate your um, response that you have sent out. And I want to further clarify something and the reasons for it, because I've discussed them here. One of the things I believe is much more important than any election cycle and, and I say this as a Christian believer, is our integrity. And I have a real problem with Christians basically going out and cheerleading for someone of, let's just say, questionable character. I think they've got to be honest, thoroughly honest, because what we do is we compromise our integrity. Our testimony is severely, severely compromised. I don't know how many times I've actually seen people who are unbelievers, who have raised questions about why Christians have taken the positions that they have. And I think it's vital. This is why I've gone out of my way to say, hey, this is a vote. This is not a an endorsement. This is basically a step to try to prevent something that I believe is worse. But it's not an endorsement. And we have to continue to hold this man accountable, along with everybody else in Washington, D.C. Nobody gets a free pass. And this is what happens. And I want to give you a fresh example of why it's so dangerous to be cheerleaders and follow people. Now, at the risk of alienating and taking off some people, this is one of the reasons why I don't have the same respect that I had for Ben Carson before. I just don't. Because these people have not only voted for him, they have shilled for him and defended the indefensible. That's crossing a line. So if you're talking about moral standards, and especially for someone who claims to be a Christian, and I've heard Christians go out there and say, well, hey, he's a new Christian. Something I've seen absolutely no evidence of. I want to hear this man's testimony. I don't want to hear some Christian leader, so-called Christian leader, tell me someone is a Christian. That person can speak for his or herself. They ought to be able to share a testimony that is about Jesus Christ. Not about church, not about Norman Vincent Peale, not about listening to sermons, but about passing from death into life. Becoming a new creation. This is what I used to be. This is who I am no longer because of Jesus Christ. A clear testimony would be wonderful. But I digress. And then we have constitutional standards, like the importance of the Electoral College. And ironically, Yahoo News did a story about how Donald Trump is still not a fan of the Electoral College. Think about this. A man who is president-elect because of the Electoral College is not a fan. On 60 Minutes, 
He said, I'm not going to change my mind just because I won, but I'd rather see it where you went with simple votes. You know, you get 100 million votes, somebody else gets 90 million, and you win. Trump, of course, went over that 270 mark to win. He won 290 to Clinton's 228 with Michigan, New York. At that point, still too close to call when this story was originally reported. At that time, the Democratic nominee led Trump in the popular vote by more than 700,000 votes, 61.3 million to 60.6 million. He has no idea about constitutional standards and why that is so important. This is the this is the perfect example of why it should be understood that Donald Trump is a progressive. His ideas are not grounded in any real ideology. This is where I get concerned when I hear people talk about populism. What the heck is that anyway? And how do you determine orthodoxy with populism? We also have this curious story by CBS News. And I, you know, I'm very leery about these things. And, and this is not anything personal against anybody. I had the same view of the Clintons and of the Bushes. But it looks like a strong possibility here that the Trump family may be beginning to set up their own dynasty. CBS News reporting that Donald Trump is potentially seeking top security, secret security clearances for his children. They've asked the White House to explore the possibility of getting his children the top secret security clearances. The children would need to be designated by the current White House as national security advisors to their father to receive these clearances. However, once Mr. Trump becomes president, he will be able to put in the request himself. Now, nepotism rules prevent the president-elect from hiring his kids to work in the White House. They do not need to be government officials to receive top-secret security clearances. And this raises another issue, another layer of questions about the role of his children and how there could be potential conflicts of interest with their running his network of businesses. And again... I'm not saying this because I'm looking for things. These are questions that have to be raised. They're legitimate questions. On the issue that is probably um, factored in significantly in the election results, illegal immigration and sanctuary cities. You know what's kind of interesting? Do you ever notice how Democrats try to portray people who in the states or the cities decide to somehow rebel against the federal government, they're crazy. You remember the Department of Homeland Security? You know, they warned about people like us. You know, that we may be a threat to the republic. We might pose a danger. We might go into that category of being, uh, what's that word they use? Extremists. But all of a sudden, it's okay if you object, if you're a Democrat, with the possibility of an immigration crackdown, especially on sanctuary cities, we are now hearing from mayors across the country saying, you know, we really don't care what Donald Trump does. We are going to remain sanctuary cities. Exhibit A, Mayor Rahm Emanuel from the city of Chicago. It is important for families that are anxious 
It is important for children and adolescents that are unsure because of Tuesday to understand that the city of Chicago is your home. You are always welcome in this city. Always. To be clear about what Chicago is, it always will be a sanctuary city. To all those who are, after Tuesday's election, very nervous, there's filled with anxiety has been spoken to, you are safe in Chicago. You are secure in Chicago, and you are supported in Chicago. The city continues will provide services, and your ability to access those services will always be there. They will not waver or change because of administration. They may change, but our values do not. This is a city of inclusion. And while you are here, and you call Chicago home, and you call yourself a resident of the city of Chicago, your legal status does not determine whether your kids can go to school. Your legal status does not determine whether you can access public services. And this is a representative of what it means to be a community of support. You are safe, you are secure, and you're supported in the city of Chicago. You know what I hear when I hear him talking like this? I hear cash registers, dollar signs. Who the heck is going to pay for this? All the hardworking people of Chicago, all of the legal citizens, are going to subsidize this. In my city of Charlotte, North Carolina, years ago, there was an effort by conservatives to try to investigate to find out how many illegal immigrants were in the school system so they could find out how much is this costing our community. The Democrats shut it down. Democrat-run city, of course. They have no interest in finding that out. Because if they start to find out what the cost is, people might actually start to balk and say, wait a second, I'm not paying for that. Have you also seen the stories about all the languages? Do you know the fastest growing languages in America right now? No, it's not Hispanic. It's not Spanish. The fastest growing language right now is Arabic. Who's going to pay for all of these language services that will be necessary in so many of these schools? Very good question as we continue on the Steve Day Show. I'm Vince Coakley. You're listening to Steve Dace. I like you. For a written transcript of this show, start writing really fast. Right now. Steve Dace. And we continue the Steve Day Show. My name is Vince Coakley filling in. Coming up, we're going to talk about the threat from jihadi lovers. This is how it's characterized by a friend of mine who is very much on this subject. And I think it's very important at a time like this when the administration, the incoming Trump administration, is putting together its team, that they avoid some landmines, some pitfalls that previous administrations, well, unfortunately, they have failed in this area. They have put people in positions where they do not belong. We have a very cautionary um, warning from a man familiar with how previous administrations have operated and says, 
we've got to have a change of course here. And certain names have been circulating, not good. Speaking of names that are circulating, they're not good. What did I just see a couple of minutes ago that I found kind of disturbing? Here's a story from earlier this evening. You might want to sit down for this. Rudy Giuliani, the new favorite to be Secretary of State in Donald Trump's administration, according to a senior Trump official who spoke on the condition of anonymity, because the source is not authorized to speak on the record. The official says there's no real competition for the job. That is the former New York mayor's if he wants it. So, doesn't that sound exciting? I want to go to this issue of self-governance. And I'd love your input on this. 800-281-TALK. 1-800-281-8255. Got to share with you a piece that was written by a friend of mine on social media before the election. And I think it speaks to, this just resonates in my heart. This is, this is my heartbeat. Because if we want to get to the place of self-governance, this is what's going to have to happen. And the truth is, we have literally generations of people who are going to have to be retaught, retrained in how to be functioning human beings. See, this is the reason why socialism and progressivism gets traction. It's because civil society is breaking down. And in this atmosphere, where else can people turn but big government? Big government has solutions to their problems. It has provision, has answers, has education, funding, whatever you need to meet your needs. Big government is there to care for you. See, and I think this is one of the areas where, frankly, we are very lazy. Because many of us are willing to march. We're willing to vote. We're willing to advocate. But... Do you know where the real work really is? It's in helping people to learn how to govern themselves. And you know who ought to be doing this work? The church. Unfortunately, we have too many people who are more preoccupied with services, with meetings, with buildings, with latte bars. Am I hitting a little close to home here? This is where we are in America. The church is, frankly, profoundly self-indulgent. If we're going to have an impact, we're going to have to step out of the salt shaker, so to speak, and do some seasoning. Well, we first have to be salty ourselves, which is another issue for another day. I want to share with you this post from a friend of mine named Sam. Sam is a pastor. And these things are very much a concern on his heart. We'll start here. It's amazing how many problems can be solved without government. When you downplay and disregard your own family, you have no choice but to depend upon government to fill the gaps. Sounds pretty logical, doesn't it? Many of us have large families. We have brothers, sisters, nieces, nephews, cousins, aunts, uncles, in-laws, parents, and grandparents. Oftentimes, our family do not operate as a team, as a tribe, or organization. We don't have family goals or meetings. 
We don't have a general fund. We don't have a family lending plan where we loan money to one another. We don't have evacuation plans in the event of a citywide emergency. We don't have a physical, geographical community. We're scattered all across America, and we spend hundreds and thousands of dollars just to visit each other. Wow. Some can't afford it, so they don't visit at all, or just less less frequently. Does all of this resonate with you? The disconnectedness? And again, this is part of the curse of our modern society. Isn't it wonderful that we're able to travel, that we're able to uh, live in different places? We don't have, in, in one sense, the uh, we have the freedom to be able to go where we want. But the downside of this is we're divided. Our own families are divided. He goes on. We don't have a security task force. We don't know self-defense. We don't own firearms, nor do we know how to use them safely. So we depend on others to protect us. We don't have an educational plan to ensure all of our family members have access to a decent education. Rarely do we have a spiritual leader in our family properly teach us about the Creator and the divine ethics he expects us to live by each day. We don't have corporate family prayer and devotion. Many families do not have a fund to bury their dead. Many families... Do not have adequate means to address the needs of the elderly among them. They don't have a hospice plan. We don't have a plan, but we put so much hope in politicians to make our lives better. I'm here to let you know, many problems you and our families face can be solved without government. Just let that sink in for a moment. Without government. And his exhortation to us which is most important, to connect with our fathers, our brothers, our uncles, our nephews, our in-laws, to begin to make this work. It can work. And guess what? This is what we've done in the past. But we've allowed it all to be torn down. I would contend a lot of this has happened because we have worshipped the almighty dollar. We've been willing to go all over the country for jobs, for careers, and we've prioritized money over connectedness. He goes on here, begin planning a think tank within your own family. Establish monthly or bi-monthly meetings to research any issues with your own families. Talk about what can be done to solve these problems. When the men unite, the women in the family will follow. Uh-oh. Women following men? <laughs> women are extremely great supporters they cannot support something that doesn't exist give them something of value to support something that will benefit the entire family and those who will be born later have a generational plan oh my goodness prepare on passing the baton to the younger ones that is what true leadership is about so again I say there are many problems our families can solve without government that is for my friend Sam Genus in Charlotte, North Carolina. Isn't he on to something here? I think so. Coming up, we'll talk about the jihadi warning, jihadi lovers that need to be avoided. Stay with us on the Steve Day Show. You are listening to Steve Dace. I like you.
Wake up, America, before it's too late. The Steve Day Show. And we continue the broadcast. I am Vince Coakley. One of the things that we're all doing is watching very closely as this Trump administration comes together. And you know, as well as I do, one of the big concerns we have, how will this new administration deal with the threat of jihadis, whether it is terrorism or whether it's civilization jihad in the undermining of our constitution, our constitutional system right here in this country? One person who is sounding the alarm on this has written a piece on his own website, understandingthethreat.com. Jihadi lovers have no place in a Trump administration. Seems like something very logical, but uh, obviously it's something that we need to have a conversation about because to some it may not be so obvious. Joining us on the program, John Guendola. And uh, thanks a lot. Welcome back to the broadcast, sir. Well, thanks for having me on, Vince. Appreciate it, as always. You've mentioned some names here that uh, have been circulated as possible members of a new Trump administration, people like Bob Corker, uh, Congressman Mike Rogers, and Mike McCall. Uh, Tell me about these guys, and what concerns do you have about these individuals? Um, I have the concerns that that I've shared uh, on a a number of occasions with you and others on the the air and, uh, and publicly is that any time, regardless of political uh, party, any time you have leaders who are openly defending jihadis and um, trying to shut down an honest discussion about the threat, that's a huge red flag. It's one thing if you approach somebody and, and they really are ignorant about it. Now, if you're a chairman of a Homeland Security Committee, for instance, uh, to claim that you're ignorant of the threat is really to claim that you're completely incompetent. But that would be better than those who, when faced with a decision, um, and again, you know, I mentioned in the article Chris Christie, but he's not as relevant because he was punted from the Trump camp. Um, but with Bob Corker, here's a guy, number one, uh, he's the guy that took the Iran Iran deal uh, over, over the goal line. Um, and in Tennessee, uh, he works with Bill Haggerty, who he actually has brought in now to the to the uh, Trump camp, who's a guy that works with uh, Hamas leaders, a guy leading something called the Jerusalem Fund, which is a very influential uh, uh, Hamas organization in the United States. Um, and he has publicly admitted he's close with a guy who's the chairman, Subhi Ali, and he hired his daughter, Samara Ali. So you've just got a mess circulating around Senator Corker um, I think, based on what I know, and that's just a little tip of the iceberg there. I go down to Mike Rogers. Um, here's a guy that went out of his way to uh, absolutely crush and uh, besmirch uh, Congresswoman Michelle Bachman when she simply put out information on the Muslim Brotherhood threat in the United States, um, said one example is Huma Abedin, and what did Mike Rogers do? He went after his own colleague, saying this was not true, there's no threat from, there's no Muslim Brotherhood penetration in the government, and he defended Huma Abedin as a patriot. Um, that's Mike Rogers. Is that the guy you want to be, fill in the blank, at any senior position in our government with regards to our national security? Um, and then the last guy, Congressman Mike McCall. Uh, I think he's the worst and most dangerous. Um, 
because apart from simply being pompous and arrogant, uh, he has taken the Muslim Brotherhood's Countering Violent Extremism program, which just so your listeners understand, when I say it's the Muslim Brotherhood's program, it was created in England by the Muslim Brotherhood leadership there. The British government fell all over themselves to implement it in their government, which has been disastrous. And uh, our government, the FBI leadership and DHS leadership, about nine years ago went over there uh, to the U.K. and brought that trash back into our system. It is literally a double agent program for the Muslim Brotherhood. What it is is that CVE is a program to ensure that our national security leadership only uses the Muslim Brotherhood when we, as their go-to for answers in national security questions regarding the Muslim community and these issues in Syria and Libya, which should explain to everyone why our entire foreign policy and counterterrorism strategy domestic has been a catastrophic failure. And this is the guy that not only is defending it, he's made sure it keeps getting funded. Um, it's just, it's unbelievable. And he's a, he's a big fan of it. Um, so I, and by the way, just as a sidebar, Hamas in the United States doing business as care has uh, call, called him, uh, you know, a great guy, and he's called them a moderate organization. That's so, just wonderful. That's uh, we're, we're, <laughs> it's a great start. We're talking with John Guindola. We'll continue our conversation about how a Trump administration can clean up this mess from two previous administrations. Stay with us. You are listening to Steve Dace. I like you. Are you hiring? You're listening to Steve Dace. You're with Vince Coakley in for Steve. We're talking with John Guindo, who's a former FBI counterterrorism agent. One of the things we've been discussing is the new administration and some of the pitfalls that it may face in some of the people under consideration for very important positions that may have to deal with this issue of jihadis. The last thing we want is another administration cooperating with organizations like CARE, who are basically unindicted co-conspirators in the Holy Land Foundation trial from years ago. We've talked about this many times. And we continue our conversation with John. One of the things that I, I'm curious about is, are you seeing any indications that Donald Trump understands these issues and that he will appoint some people who will be ready not only to not make the same stupid mistakes, but they're going to have to do a lot of cleaning up of previous policies. And frankly, uh, they're going to have to do cleaning house of some of the people who've bought into some of these, these, um, these uh, failed policies. Yes. Uh, first, the first part of your question, yes. I, I think at a gut level, he understands the problem. Uh, what I sense that is not understood is the depth of the networks here and uh, how much they've penetrated the system. And again, just to reiterate for your audience that has, has not followed uh, the UTT's work and my work, um, understanding the threat, is that the the jihadis are using the uh, the hard left, the, the Marxists in this country, uh, as their tool for what they're doing. So you're seeing the protests out on the streets uh, when you saw a uh, uh, five police officers killed in Dallas, for instance. These are not all separate events. Uh, we know, as a matter of fact, that at the strategic level and at the 
at the ground level. The hard-left Marxist forces are working with the jihadi forces. So groups like Hamas, doing business as care, are working directly with Black Lives Matter, are working directly with these other Marxist groups. And these are Marxist groups. And, and just as a reminder, you know, these protests, these are, I know there have been some reporting on this that these are bought and paid for. Um, but it's important to remember that the, the late 70s and early 80s, those, the nuclear war, the nuclear protests, the nuclear missile protests in Europe and the United States, those were funded by the KGB. And so uh, what I just really, to get this into the psyche of the, the, those listening, is that this is a very important time to understand that there's a lot going on and people really need to pay attention. I think Mr. Trump gets it at a gut level. I think he is willing to, uh, and he's already uh, made it pretty clear, he's willing to um, designate the Muslim Brotherhood a terrorist organization. He is willing to look at opening up the HLF uh, unindicted co-conspirators and going after them, which would include Hamas doing business as CARE, the Islamic Society of North America, their bank for the Brotherhood, North American Islamic Trust, and many others, and hopefully the Muslim Students Association. So that would, that would be huge to start ripping down their leaders, but there's so much more work to do. And as I've said before, UTT is the only organization in the country. We are the only ones training law enforcement and local and state leaders on how to identify jihadis, how to identify the networks and dismantle them and create strategies to actually retake your county, your state, um, in order to, uh, to deal with the jihadi threat because it's so deeply embedded in these communities. Uh, just as an aside, because I think it's worth uh, mentioning, you were talking about this nexus between uh, the radical Islamic groups and the Democrat Party. You now have one of the leading candidates now, for the head of the DNC, Keith Ellison. Tell us about Keith Ellison. Well, I just, <laughs> this is actually, to me, it's a good thing um, because it, it makes the argument for us. It proves our point. Uh, Keith Ellison is a, is a suit-wearing jihadi. Uh, he's not a, a friendly, run-of-the-mill Muslim guy. He is a pro-Hamas, pro-jihad, uh, and he's a member of Congress. It's it's uh, it's outrageous. As a matter of fact, uh, the vice president of UTT, Chris Gobbitz, went undercover uh, in 2008 into Hamas doing business as care. And the book Muslim Mafia was written about that experience. And uh, Chris was at events where um, uh, both Keith Ellison and the other uh, Muslim congressman from Indiana, Andre Carson, spoke at the at the Hamas event. And it's just it's un real that that uh that this is allowed to go on but the beauty is now they're talking about making him the dnc chairman i mean that right there is just an example of the absolute merging of the marxists and the uh and the jihadis by elevating a guy like that into that position now we only have about a minute or so left in this segment i want to ask you if if you were asked for instance how do you undo the damage that's been done not just by the obama administration but also by the Bush administration, because they've made some of the same mistakes. Uh, if you were given carte blanche to go in and try to fix this within our agencies, the FBI and otherwise, what do you do? Well, first of all, I, I, I mentioned a couple. Number one, you designate the Muslim Brotherhood. Number two, you 
go after the unindicted co-conspirators in HLF, and uh, you support groups like ours that are actually on the ground level, state level, working with governors and attorney generals to dismantle the networks. But you, there's, there's so much more. You've got to shut down the refugee resettlement program. I believe you have to freeze all immigration in the United States for at least five years so we can get a handle. All immigration. Our, yeah, to get a handle on our, on, our, um, on our security. Because it's not just while there is a preponderance of the jihadis coming in, you've also got a lot of other folks coming in that are we are not able to vet. We have no idea what's going on. I think you need to take a pause. This is not, and by the way, this is historically, we had years where we didn't let any immigrants in, so this is not something that's a new idea. I think we need to shut down the United Nations and send them packing. That is a, that is a hotbed of spies and terrorists in our country, and that they have no intention of working with us. These are enemies for the most part, of uh, of the United States. It's an absolute mess. I think you need to rebuild our military forces, but also train law enforcement and military personnel and leaders as to the true nature of the Islamic threat. And we have got to rebuild our broken counterintelligence apparatus. We literally have a non-functioning uh, counterintelligence apparatus, and that's got of, to be fixed. A lot of work to do, for sure. Understanding the threats. John Guendola, thanks a lot for coming on the broadcast, and we'll be uh, following up with you to see how this process goes. Thanks, sir. Thanks for having me. So we continue on the Steve Day Show. My name is Vince Coakley, and for Steve. You are listening to Steve Dace. I like you. Don't blame us. He went to public school. This is Steve Dace. And you're with Vince Coakley in for Steve here. Just a few minutes before the top of the hour. What are your thoughts so far? Some of the things you've heard. We want to continue this theme of self-governance coming up in the next hour. One of the things that I've repeatedly said, and this, I'll tell you what, when it, take, when it involves our political system, one of the things I've advocated for quite some time, do not elect somebody who's not as smart as you are. Honestly. And this is one of the areas where this comes into play. When we talk about civilization jihad, and not just terrorism, but civilization jihad. For those of you not aware, the plan for civilization jihad is to undermine our political system and bring it to a place of collapse. Turn it against us. For those who not were not familiar, I actually went to a conference. John Guendola was a part of that conference back in 2009, I believe it was. It was in Fort Mill, South Carolina. And you want to talk about a fire hose of information. It would just, just blew me away, all of the information I learned about the inroads Islam is making in this country. And it's not just terrorism. We are basically being subverted, we have what I believe amounts to sedition right here in this country by our government officials. And just to give you an example, in recent history, the government supported in Egypt, that was a Muslim Brotherhood government. 
before the military took over the country again. Now, I have a question for you. If you're involved in supporting terrorism, what is this government going to do to you? They will come after you. And yet, government officials, high government officials, have been complicit in the advance of jihad. Whether it's violent jihad or civilization jihad, they have actually helped that process. Isn't it amazing? Keith Ellison is now apparently a top candidate to be the new DNC chair. It's amazing. This shows you how far the Democrat Party has gone. They are just completely immersed in this. They are jihadi defenders, not Muslim defenders. They are jihadi defenders and jihadi enablers. The party is given over to that. And unfortunately, there are Republicans that are also complicit. Earlier, we were talking about what is ahead for the U.S. House. And I came across this. Dave Bratt is actually urging a delay on the speaker vote. This was supposed to happen on uh, Tuesday. He is urging a delay in the speaker vote. He's saying Paul Ryan, well, doesn't really have the mandate. And I think he's trying to claim one. Coming up, we'll talk more about self-governance and what it looks like in your community. Hour number three is coming up. The Steve Day Show. I'm Vince Coakley. You're listening to Steve Dace. I like you. You are now about to witness the strength of knowledge. This is Steve Dace. Raising a banner of bold colors, no pale pastels. People should not be afraid of their governments. Governments should be afraid of their people. Our rights are inherent and essential, derived from our maker. That is liberty, and liberty will reign in America. This is Steve Dace. Come on! And good evening. This is Vince Coakley in for Steve Dace. One of the issues we've been talking about tonight is self-governance. You heard something that I read from a good friend of mine. His name is Sam Genus about how we need to take back our communities. And, you know, we find the presidential campaign to be quite sexy. You notice that everybody gets worked up about presidential politics. They get worked up about this state and the uh, the Senate and House races. But at the state level and the local level, very often it gets ignored. This is where a lot of the important activity takes place. And we are very often leaving some very important issues unaddressed because we're not engaged in that manner. One of the people I have certainly learned a lot from and enjoyed talking with in our home market of Greenville, South Carolina, is Diane Hardy. She is a citizen volunteer. And she is joining us on the program tonight to talk about uh, what has taken place in the past and the kinds of things that you can get involved in in your own local community. Good evening. Welcome to the broadcast, Diane. Yeah. Hi. Good evening, Vince. Thanks for having me on. Um, well, I've, I've been, I've, go ahead. Go right ahead. Uh, what do you like to say for starters here? 
Well, I've just I've been listening to you this evening talk about self governance, and you're so on target with that. I mean, that is, but I think part of the problem is I'm not even sure what that means to some people. I mean, we've been living as if we're in a democracy where we're focused on election day, but we actually live in a republic. I mean, we belong in a republic, but we're living as if we're in a democracy because of what the media and the schools have taught us. I mean, they're even teaching our children that we live in a democracy, and you hear elected officials say it all the time. And so that causes us, the citizens, to be so focused on the elective cycle and election day in particular, when in a republic, that that's not at all the, the way the fo- where the focus should be. Well, tell us how it, how important it is to understand that distinction and how that breaks down in terms of our engagement. Yeah, it breaks it down on several levels. You know, we you know all political powers in the people themselves, and we hear that, but we were never taught how to wield it. I know I wasn't taught when I went to school or even in my family what that means. And so, if we continue to live it as living as if we're in a democracy, we'll continue to focus on election day rather than in a republic, which is what the founders envisioned, where the citizenry would actually be working, you know, on a daily or weekly basis with their elected officials. And it would, they would have an effect on them and have influence on them. And so it would be not us following the government, but them actually responding to the citizens. And that's certainly a novel idea, isn't it? Because it's not what we see happening most of the time. These folks seem to have minds of their own in going directions that are totally contrary to the what is thought to be the will of the people. Let, let's break this down to the very basic level here, because uh, I think we are we're really trapped, as you've described here, in the tyranny of election cycles. How do we get out of that? Well, it really comes from some reframing. You know, I had to actually, I took training through the Center for Self-Governance, and now I am a volunteer host for them. And they taught me so many things that I, in fact, I actually had to take the first class over a couple times because it was all so new to me that it took a little while for me to get the concepts and for it to sink in. But, you know, the definition of politics is social relations involving strategy to gain authority. So what now what I focus on is forming those social relations. I now know my county councilmen. They call me. They want my opinion. Um, they have my cell phone number. I have theirs. And we're working together as a team rather than this divide where they we feel like they are doing things to us. And a, a big thing I had to learn was um, to focus more on local politics, you know, there are 12 county councilmen, and if I have, you know, four or five that are, are that are that I have a really strong relationship, imagine the impact they can have. We're so focused on the federal and the national level, which where we as citizens have very little impact. Even if you could completely influence your congressman, he's only one of 535 officials up there. So we're so focused on the wrong things. We're focused on the parties, which are actually not government at all. They're special interest groups. And we're focused on the federal level, and we're focused on the election cycle rather than the legislative cycle. So there's so much that's flipped on its head, and that's why I think we feel like that's why we are in the tyranny we're in, because the people have lost the way of knowing how to live in a republic. Let's break this down. We're talking with Diane Hardy, who is a citizen volunteer. For someone who is 
uh, kind of new to this entire idea. What's a good starting place for somebody who says, okay, I've been involved, I vote all the time, but from what I'm hearing from you, I am uh, very much a novice. I don't even understand where I would need to start. What's a good starting place? Well, for me, uh, for me, it was the Center for Self-Governance. They will come into your community and teach a class. It's very reasonable price. Most of their instructors do it as a volunteer basis. And there are five different levels of the program, and you don't have to take all five. I, I have taken all five, and I've had to take several of them over again. But um, I think that's a great place to start. I'm sure there are other places, too. Just even going back to our history of Mrs. Powell and Benjamin Franklin and how she was able to have strategic influence on our government without even the right to vote. And if we go back to those roots of the individuals and the citizens being having a relationship actually with their elected officials, a positive relationship where, you, where you're working together. Now, you can't do that with all of them, and I, I get that. I'm not naive. But um, for me personally, um, living self-governance is a daily and weekly thing, and um, it's not just about Election Day anymore for me. You know, one of the things, that, and I've noticed this in the way that you engage in our conversations because a lot of people, and you'll hear this a lot of times with talk radio, you'll hear people kind of work people up into a frenzy and say, hey, you need to call your senator, call your congressman. And you have a very different relationship. How would you characterize that? Yes, I think it's a, it's a relationship that's built over time and credibility. They know that they can trust myself and their people on my team. We have a very small group of citizens who have all taken this training here locally. And, I mean, when I say small, I mean small. There's, like, less than eight of us. But we've been able to have quite a major impact. We, um, we've we won some local issues, and then we recently were able to oust a, um, the second most powerful senator in our state because we felt like he wasn't responsive to the citizens. Um, but what we do, like, one of the things we did when we first met with our county council, we didn't know them well. We really didn't know much of what was going on. But we were taking these classes, and we met with them, and we said, how could we help you? What issues could we as citizens help you with? And they gave us an issue that they needed some help with, and it was actually the first local issue that our team won, and it was a great feeling. And uh, But we worked with them, and so now they rely on us, and they actually ask us to help them. They'll, you know, Even our state legislators will say, can you and your team look across the country for the best legislation that has to do with maybe refugees or, you know, they'll pick an issue and they'll say, can you help us find the best legislation out there? Because our state elected officials, we now have empathy for them. They have thousands of bills and very little staff. And so when they find citizens that are caring and that are credible and that are trained, we are now a resource to them and we're working with them and influencing them. And this sounds very different than the adversarial mindset that so many approaches. It's like I'm going to get on my senator's case or my state representative's case. This is more of a relationship that's developed over time, a relationship of trust both ways. Exactly. I mean, we're going back again to the definition of politics, social relations involving strategy to gain authority. Well, if you're not forming those social relations, and you don't have the strategy, then how are you going to gain your authority? And the second piece of that was actually for me to learn strategy. Uh, before I had taken my training, I went and did all kinds of things. I, I, I organized an IRS rally and, and made 40 or 50 IRS signs and 
all these tactics. I went down and testified before the uh, Senate subcommittee, but the boat was already baked in the cake. I wasted my time driving to my state house to do that. Um, I even held a banner on a bridge and, uh, you know, holding this banner for, for to vote for my candidate. And then that didn't work out because the cops came when they thought I was a jumper. So, you know, I had all these <laughs> tactics. <laughs> yeah, that one really didn't work out. <laughs> all these tactics, but yet no strategy. And so now with the team training, it's kind of like SEALs. You know, SEALs, they, they do intense training and they have a strategy and then they go and carry it out. And they're just not running around willy-nilly doing things. Very important distinction there. We're having a conversation here with Diane Hardy. She's a citizen volunteer and we'll continue that conversation after the break right here on the Steve Day Show. I'm Vince Coakley. To Steve Dace. I like you. Hunting rhinos into extinction. The Steve Day Show. You know, it's Vince Coakley in for Steve Dace. 21 minutes after the hour, and it's an interesting subject as we talk about hunting rhinos, uh, because I think this is an important issue for us to touch on. We're talking with Diane Hardy, who is a citizen volunteer. One of the big things that I think we've noticed in this election cycle, we've got a huge problem with Democrats voting in Republican primaries. What we have in too many cases are open primaries, and if I remember correctly, these kinds of practices have been actually empowered as a result of the Republican convention over the summer, and it got really scant attention. How important an issue is this, Diane Hardy? Well, this is an extremely important issue. Um, what we It was one of the very first issues that our team, our Center for Self-Governance team, chose to take on. Um, and one of the reasons we did is we thought it would really expose those in our state house those that we that needed democratic votes to stay in office would fight it and those who didn't would be on our side. And so this was we chose this as one of our signature issues because it would be very telling and it would help us identify, you know, those those issues, those pillars that we call them, the ones that really are there for the right reasons. And so we worked hard on this issue and one of the um state senators who was pushing back the hardest, he would just not even allow it to go for a vote. It's okay if we disagree on the issue, but he was blocking it from going for a vote before the Senate. And I'm happy to say that even being outspent five to one, um, two stay-at-home moms were able, with our small team of of citizens, with two years of planning in in the works ahead of time, and we planned this out, you know, finding a candidate, and uh, when he would not let this go for a vote, then we needed to have him replaced, and we were able to do that last election cycle. But we used the legislative cycle to find out who it was we needed to target, so to say. That is really impressive and how you were able to accomplish this. And part of what you've done here, which I think is really cool, because – uh, and people need to understand, it's not a matter of you working alone, being a lone ranger here. You're talking about the idea, and part of your vision 
is to see teams formed uh, really all across the state and the region and the country for that matter. Yes, and there are other Center for Self-Governance teams across the country. Um, We would like to see more of them in our state because once you have this training, you really learn the skills of strategic influence. And CSG, or Center for Self-Governance, teaches citizens how to have strategic influence. And the thing that I love about this organization, I've been involved with many other organizations in the past, and Center for Self-Governance gives you the skills, and then they say, you know your political subdivision best. You choose the issues that you would like to work on. So it's not a top-down at all. Um, They just help. They want to keep the republic, and they want citizens to learn for us to relearn what it means to live in a republic and how to operate in one and what our civic responsibility is. And it's much more than voting, and it's much more than complaining to our elected officials. Give us a sense of your agenda now. And here we are after an election cycle. Where are you guys focused now? What are the kinds of things that you hope to accomplish? Well, we, our team met together, and we um, and we're very can very easily decide what we want to um, take on because we are we're not really focused on issues and candidates. Um, we're more focused on strategy. So we will decide which issues we think are the best strategic issues um, for decentralizing power. That's what we that's what we'd like to see is decentralized decision making. And so we have about five different. Um, not really at liberty to say what they are right now, but we have five different issues or so that we've decided to stay, take up in our state house of South Carolina and also a few locally. Now, this training, uh, for those people who may be interested in this, how can they pursue the training? Well, you can go to uh, centerforselfgovernance.com, and you can look and see if there is any training in your state. And if there isn't, you can contact them and offer to do what I did, which is to be a volunteer host. And you could host the training, which would just mean organizing the classes. Um, you know, you'd find some students who are interested in taking the class. And then the trainer comes to you. And um, you take the, um, the first class. It's a six-hour class, and it's $50. And you can begin to learn these skills. And like I said, it's not an overnight, it's not a quick fix. It's not an overnight thing because we have to, we did not grow up with these uh, these skills of living in a republic. So it does take a little while to learn them. But once you have a team of citizens who have taken this training, uh, it's just incredible. We all have different gifts and talents. And when we pull it all together and we lean on each other, we have complete trust in each other. And it's just been a fantastic experience, so much better than the other types of political work I had done in the past. And we can certainly see the fruit of that in some of the things you described earlier. Uh, Any final words you want to share with us? Just uh, words of encouragement. You and I have talked a lot about this because, you know, I don't think you'd mind me saying this. You're not a person who's been drinking the Trump Kool-Aid. And (laughs) and yet um, it seems to me that that's. Your work goes on, irrespective of who is in the White House or who is in Congress, that sort of thing. Oh, it definitely does. And it's actually very freeing to not be so tied to the media and the election cycle that the media is putting down our throat. I mean, we're doing our thing, and we it's really, um, I don't know, satisfying to watch the government now responding to us as a small group of citizens. Um, the government responding to us rather than the other way around. And 
we realize that, you know, we, the people, have the power. The government may have the control, but they don't have the power. If you ask most people, they'll say, yes, the government has too much power. No, no, they don't have any power. We have the power. They just have the control. And so once we realize that and we learn how to take our power back, and I don't mean in an adversarial way, but, you know, in a smart, strategic way, and we find those elected officials that we can work with, that can work with us, um, it, it's just incredible, um, the force multiplier effect that you can see with, with this training and what you can accomplish. Well, Diane Hardy, I so appreciate you coming on the broadcast and sharing about your experience and also encouraging other people to get involved. Uh, great talking with you and look forward to connecting with you again soon. Thank you so much, Vince. Thanks for having me on. Enjoyed it. Thank you. Absolutely. Uh, Diane Hardy, who is um, a citizen volunteer in the Greenville, South Carolina area. And my exhortation to you, this is uh, the kind of thing you can do in your community. Find the people who are involved in these kinds of activities the Center for Self-Governance, you can get the training, and effectiveness is what this is about. It's not about noise. It's not about um, mindless activism, because I think there's a lot of mindless activism that's going on. And, uh, hey, I will uh, throw in here, we in talk radio can be guilty of that at times. Uh, I want to see much more activation and agitation that's one of my themes for the new year 2017 less agitation more activation what do you think as we continue the steve day show i want to get your thoughts and many of the things we've discussed this evening the listener line is 1-800-281-TALK 1-800-281-8255 it's half past the hour You're listening to Steve Dace. I like you. This is the show your atheist college professor warned you about. This is Steve Dace. 34 minutes after the hour, you're with Vince Coakley and for Steve Dace. Speaking of, I love stirring things up. Oh, boy, should I really go down this road? I wasn't planning to, but I may as well just put it out there since I've already kind of hinted at it. You know what I've discovered about atheism and agnosticism? Do you know what my my most frequent encounters with these ideologies or lack thereof have been connected with bad church experiences. Honestly, I have never seen such a mess as I have observed over the last seven years of my Christian life of people who have swerved into agnosticism and atheism. And I can tell you, All of the people that I am aware of this is happening to, they've come out of churches. What is my point? Why am I saying this? I'm saying this because this, folks, is where we're losing the battle. All of these things we're talking about, the disintegration of civil society, this begins with the church. We don't do very well with civilization. 
We do well with meetings, entertainment, events. We need to learn how to provide these building blocks to show people how to do this. That post I share with you from Sam. I'd love to get your thoughts on anything we've discussed in the broadcast this evening. 800-281-TALK. 1-800-281-8255. You're welcome to provide your perspective on anything we've discussed this evening. Do you remember the Oregon official who basically stuck it to that Christian bakery over the gay wedding cake? Well, this person was aspiring to higher office. And we have a very interesting update, thanks to the Daily Caller, on this particular person. His name is Brad Avakian. His previous job was Commissioner of the Oregon Bureau of Labor and Industries. He's been in that position since 2008. His claim to fame, he achieved national notoriety for investigating sweet cakes by Melissa. This is a bakery that refused to furnish a wedding cake for two lesbians on the grounds that doing so would violate the owner's Christian beliefs. In 2015, Avakian levied a $135,000 fine on the store's owners. Aaron and Melissa Klein, declaring their refusal to produce the cake, was not protected by the First Amendment and instead was simply illegal discrimination. In October, the bakery shut down entirely. This was not the first time Mr. Avakian used heavy fines to push gay rights. He also fined a bar owner more than $400,000 for telling a group of cross-dressers and transgender people to stay away because the owner didn't want his bar to be characterized as a tranny bar. I never heard that story. $400,000? Really? So while the poor Klein's business was going downhill, Avakian decided to turn his sights to higher office. In last week's general election, he ran for Oregon Secretary of State. But I've got some good news for you. In an upset... Dennis Richardson, a former state representative and gubernatorial candidate. I love these stories. Trounced Avakian. Richardson will come the first Republican to win an Oregon statewide office in 14 years. You talk about the favor of God. It has to be. 14 years for a Republican to win a statewide office. The first Republican Secretary of State since 1985. As you know, that part of the country is just super-duper liberal. I mean, that is that is super-tree-hugger country there. In fact, if you're within the sound of my voice and you live in that part of the country, we'd love to hear from you and hear how you survive in that atmosphere. It's just uh, super-liberal. Notably, Richardson Richardson actually triumphed despite being an outspoken social conservative. Boy, doesn't this go against all the rules? Social conservative in a state known for its liberality. Richardson pitched himself as a nonpartisan figure who would focus on the job's traditional roles, monitoring elections, auditing public spending. Avakian wanted to turn this into a vehicle for progressive politics. And the people rejected him. Isn't that awesome? I thought a 
good story, an encouraging story would be good for you. As we continue with the Steve Day Show, I'm Vince Coakley. You're listening to Steve Dace. I like you. not saying that God is on our side. We're just trying to get on his. This is Steve Dace. And you're with Vince Coakley in for Steve Dace. Something else on the lighter side. And again, just to remind people, I am not a Trump cheerleader. Lest anybody uh, get confused here. But I get a kick out of the hysteria out there which is just absolutely hilarious. And it's especially funny when this backfires by those people who assume that you're on the same page. (laughs) Case in point, are you familiar with Wanda Sykes? Wanda Sykes is a black lesbian comedian. Now, frankly, I don't find this woman very funny at all. I don't. I've never been amused by her. She's a... very coarse, just really kind of an annoying human being. Anyway, she made the mistake of doing a little bit of a tirade against Donald Trump. And it didn't go over very well. This is kind of difficult to hear at parts, but I think you can make out what she's saying. The typical line about Donald Trump and who he is and blah, 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 blah. So, uh, Then I'll tell you how the crowd reacted to this. First, here is her little rant. After the election, I was I was going around consoling people. I said, guys, look on the bright side. Look at this. I was telling everybody, it's gonna be okay. It's gonna be okay. I was like, I am certain this is not the first time we've elected a racist, sexist, homophobic president. This, this, he ain't the first one. He's just the first confirmed one. That's it. <laughs> Do you hear that? They're booing her. And this got even better. She goes on in this anti-Trump tirade. At one point, she described Trump as an orangutan. <laughs> saying she could not believe the country elected him. She thought this was going to bring about laughs. They started booing. You could hear that. You know what she does? She actually starts looking and lashing out at the audience, telling them to blank off. She's just looking around saying, blank you, blank you, blank you, blank. It's, she was out of control. (laughs) This was hilarious. Not what she expected. And I think, again, this goes to the heart of the idea. If if something that is uh, a silver lining in all of this, it's certainly a good thing that these folks who have assumed that everybody is with them, they can't be so sure anymore. I mean, typically the people go to these things They expect they're going to be liberals, they're going to be drinking the Kool-Aid, and they're going to laugh at their stupid jokes. In this case, not funny. Not funny at all. 
Also, not a lot of laughing going on at the post-election meetings. Did you hear about this? The Hill reporting about the meltdown with screams leveled at Donna Brazil. You know that Donna Brazil who was the subject of a number of WikiLeaks emails. According to the Huffington Post, she was giving a supposedly uplifting speech to 150 people attending this event when a staffer by the name of Zach stood up to ask a question. He asked, why should we trust you as chair to lead us through this? You backed a flawed candidate and your friend, Debbie Wasserman Schultz, plotted through this to support your own gain and yourself. Ooh. He goes on. You are part of the problem, blaming Brazil for clearing the path for Trump's victory by siding with Clinton early on. You and your friends will die of old age. I'm going to die from climate change. (gasps) Poor thing. You and your friends let this happen, which is going to cut 40 years off my life expectancy. (laughs) Seriously. These folks actually believe this nonsense. So Zach, after his little outburst, he gathers his things and starts to walk out. Brazil called after him, asked where he was going. He told her to go outside and tell people why she should be leading the party. Really? (laughs) This is so sad. And it gets even worse. Get a load of this. Robert Reich, the former labor secretary under Bill Clinton, he is not too happy. Losing is one thing, but one of the reasons that Robert Reich is convinced that the Democrats lost is because they pursued a candidate who was not a genuine progressive. You see, Hillary Clinton was too conservative. I'm serious. That's really the problem here. She was too conservative. He's actually talking about Mr. Reich creating a third party if the Democrat Party does not move in a more progressive direction. Oh, I think uh, choosing this Muslim guy, oh, that's a progressive direction, all right. Reich goes on, the Democratic Party can no longer be the same. It has, it has been repudiated. This has been a huge refutation of establishment politics, and the political organization has got to be changed. If the Democratic Party can't do it, we'll do it through a third party. This is civil war, folks, between the more progressive wing of the party and the more corporate wing of the party. Doesn't this sound familiar? Same thing that's going on in the Republican Party. Some of the party are blaming progressives who supported Bernie Sanders for refusing to rally behind Hillary Clinton. One strategist told The Hill, the Sanders people should be mad at themselves. If they had come out to vote, Donald Trump wouldn't be president. Others say the corporate wing of the party has to be purged to appeal to more working class voters. Those are the people they lost. By the way, did you know there's an intersection, there's a connection between a lot of the people who voted for Donald Trump? Many of these people, guess who they voted for last time? Barack Obama. How's that for fluid? (laughs) We'll continue with more on the Steve Day Show. I'm Vince Coakley.
listening to Steve Dace. I like you. Reminding you that Almighty God is always a majority. This is Steve Dace. And we continue the broadcast here in the final stretch. And we've got Pete joining us out of Oregon. Uh, Good evening, Pete. Good evening, and thank you for uh, taking a few minutes here with me. First time that I've called into your show tonight. Excellent. So I'm up in the Salem area, um, actually near Jefferson, although I live several hours south of here near the state of Jefferson. And when you mentioned Brad Avakian and Dennis Richardson in the Secretary of State's race, uh, well, I took the bait. All right. How did you take the bait? So, well, I was definitely very much in favor of Dennis Richardson winning that seat. And I'm saying that as a cannabis. Um, that would be a marijuana activist in layman's terms who has to spend half of his time up here in the state capitol doing the work that we need to do to get our laws passed and get them responsibly enforced. And I thought that Brad Avakian as Secretary of State would have been an absolute disaster. Understandably so. And are you surprised? Are you surprised at the outcome of this particular race? No, I'm not, in part because it was a five-way race, and the other um, minor contenders in the race primarily took votes away from Avakian. But I was concerned about what the margin of outcome would be for our victory, because um, we've historically, as you know, had a hard time getting solid conservatives elected in this portion of the state. It is a real challenge. How do you survive in a state like that? Because you're surrounded completely. I am, but if you look at the electoral map on a county-by-county basis, you know, I I am in a really interesting position here because most of our counties are red counties, and that means most of our counties are not in favor of the type of cannabis advocacy that I do. But at the same time, the people that run those counties are completely in alignment with me on basically every other issue. So coming up to Salem... um, Marion turned out to be a blue county, but also voted against the issues that I hold the most near and dear. You kind of get used to the fact that you're dealing with a bunch of bipolar people. <laughs> That's a pretty interesting way to look at it. Hey, Pete, well, great if to... you can accept that as a reality, yep. then um, you, you don't let it impact you as directly, and you continue to move forward. And I think that we're going to see something really good here in the next few years with Dennis Richardson as a constitutionally-minded Secretary of State. I believe he'll uphold the law, he'll uphold the duties of the office as they are written into the Oregon Constitution, and that's what I want out of my elected representative. That's absolutely awesome. Pete, thank you very much for calling the broadcast tonight. A great way to end the show, and again, special thanks to my good friend Steve Dace for allowing me to fill in this evening. My name is Vince Coakley. Have yourselves a great night, and God bless you. Adios. Listening to Steve Dace. I like you.